Hello, welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Great to see you guys. Not only Merry Christmas, but uh, Happy Thanksgiving, right? First things first. Oh, so good to be with you. Um, just looking forward to this uh, time together. Studying our last little session on Moses and leadership. So if you're visiting for the first time, let me get you on board and we'll begin. But uh, we're studying four different leadership aspects about Moses. I would love to go on for another four weeks, but uh, we're moving into the holiday season, so we'll just cut it off here for now. But we're interested in four areas that uh, you're not going to find in your leadership manual, wherever you work and whatever you're studying, growing in. uh, What are those things that are unique, particularly to spiritual leadership, that Moses had to learn? And we can climb on his shoulders and learn with him. So we've already covered the death of a vision, and that's that moment of disappointment where you, you thought you knew the will of God, you thought you knew what God wanted you to do, and it didn't happen. Right? Anybody that ever happened to? Just me? Yeah. It, it, it could be marriage, it could be a job, it could be some dream, some hopes, big or small. You step out and it doesn't happen. And, and then you think, now what? And it's usually at that moment that we find out what you're really made of. Because if you just give up and walk away, it's just not a good story. I'm not watching that movie. You know? So you gotta figure out, okay, what is it? You reinvent, you pray, you seek God, and you see that happen in Moses' life, going from the killing of the Egyptian to now leading all of Israel out of Egypt. So the second thing is dependency. And the vision that comes to you is is a vision that you're dependent on God. God has asked you to get out of the boat and come. How are you gonna do that, little buddy? You've been practicing on walking on water? You're out of your element. You're beyond what you can do. You're dependent on God. And that's the way you were designed to be from the beginning. You were never designed to be independent of God, but dependent. And you look much better being dependent on him. And the third thing is perseverance. I joke with some friends about if we were to offer a conference here on perseverance, how many people would come? And we already figured out the long-distance runners would come. You know, the... Anyone who's a triathlete, they're going to come. But if there were several other conferences going around here at the same time, one on the second coming of Christ, the new insight of when he's coming, uh, another one on how to be more filled than anybody else with the Holy Spirit, another one on how to reach your generation with the cool, key, cultural current uh, techniques, and our conference on perseverance. How do you think we're going to fare? You know, it's just not a subject that most people are interested in. I don't want to hear about perseverance. I want, to, I want the cat, cotton candy stuff, you know. But who you are over distance is who you are. Who you are in a moment is not who you are. It's sustaining that over time is who you are. And that takes perseverance. Now we come to the fourth thing, which is my favorite that Moses discovers for you and I. We get to climb on his back, going up the mountain, coming back down the mountain of Sinai. It's truth and grace. I'm hearing a song in my mind. It's Christmas coming up. I'll give you a hint. He rules the world Stop, stop, stop. That is so good. Give yourselves a hand. That is is just amazing. I've never seen that. I've never done that. That's amazing. All I told you was I'm hearing a song, and you just began to sing it. We're hearing it together. So truth and grace. 
What is it? Let's pray together. Father, come and speak to us by your Holy Spirit. We are dependent on you to unlock our minds, open our hearts, and open your word to us. Speak, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as leaders, whether you're a leader of some huge corporation, thank you, Bill Gates, for joining us here today, or if you are just leading your own soul, you're a leader. And one of the things that a leader has to find is true north. What are the convictions, what are the principles that you live by in that particular setting of life? What is that torch that you carry that the other people that are following know that that's what you stand for and that's who you are and that's why you do what you do? So it says in Exodus 32, 15, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. Now watch this. You never knew this before. Look at this. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. Oh, yes. I love those little details where you say to Christians, they say, did you know that the tablets were inscribed front and back? That usually people say, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. It's in the Bible. (laughs) Well, that kind of trivia is not going to change your life. It's like... Oh, my, that, that rocked my world, you know. But it is interesting, and it's, I love this kind of stuff, but I, I move on quickly. I'm not the person that writes a dissertation on this kind of stuff. But here's the question that you've never thought of. The two tablets. Why two tablets? By the way, I love the fact that it was front and back because it's a great uh, saving of paper, right? You know, rather... <laughs> But front and back, two tablets, why? Was it A, two tablets that had the same laws on each one, one copy for Moses and one copy for God? It's intriguing, right? That's the way covenants were made in the ancient world. Each party got a copy of the agreement. Interesting, right? Or B, was it um, front and back, but uh, the front side had the first four laws that have to do with God, the vertical, our relationship with him, and then the second six are horizontal with how we treat other people. And so we're the first four on the first, on the front side and the second six on the backside, or was it just God wrote really big and uh, needed (laughs) four sides to get them all on? It doesn't change the story, but it's fun to think about. So, and by the way, they didn't have books yet. There there was no invention of books as we know it. So so it wasn't like, well, that's page one and then that's page two. Uh, if they eventually went to scrolls and then a long time later created books. So Moses comes down the mountain with his new truth that he's carrying to the people. It's a big deal. Uh, Moses was raised in Egypt. He only knew about Israel's ancient past in the book of Genesis, and in the book of Genesis, there's just some vague guidelines of how to live truth. One is the word righteousness, uh, even the name Melchizedek, Zedek is the word righteous, and it was a big deal. You live rightly. That was a law. That was a truth. Just live rightly. Uh, the righteousness means to fall in line with the standard. So whatever the standard is, fall in line. Live rightly. The other word is faithfulness. You see that several times in the book of Genesis. Be faithful. Be faithful to God. Be faithful to other people. But there was nothing codified beyond that. In in the 
Iraqi Babylonian area, there, there was the codification that took place around 1400 BC, the Hammurabi uh, Code, and, and it's interesting, nothing as involved as we have here in the book of Exodus and also in the book of Leviticus. In Egypt, they had a code of law that they followed, but nothing like we have here. God is giving the children of Israel a torch to live by. How do we follow God and how do we treat other people? And as you go through the law, you see all the different nuances that most of us read the law. How many of you have ever read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Raise your hand. How many of you enjoyed it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty tedious, right? It's like, oh, this is what people who are studying to become attorneys have to study, you know? If you stop at a stoplight and they stop at a stoplight, the person who is to the right of you has the right of way. You know, that's, that's codified in our law. And we get really upset. Like, why did you just do that? You were to the left of me and you went first. <laughs> it, right? It bothers us because it's, it's the code. Well, God codified everything. He codified hygiene he codified dietary uh, laws. He codified uh, cleansing as you come into the temple to purify yourself. He codified what animals to sacrifice over what things and how to do things for how the priests and the Levites are to function. He codifies everything. And we often go back to that and say, ooh, how much of this am I supposed to pay attention to? And I think we flippantly rip it all up and say, whoa, I'm glad Jesus fulfilled the law, whatever. <laughs> you know, whatever to that. But the early church didn't do whatever to the Torah. They understood that the moral ethical part of the law was the expression of God's heart of how we are supposed to treat him and how we're supposed to treat each other. But we also understand in the New Testament era that we have a set of commandments that are now inside of us. Jeremiah calls it the Holy Spirit writing the law on the tablets of our heart. Do you remember that? That's pretty cool. So you are a walking, portable uh, codification of the heart of God inside of you. Not meaning that we get to make it up and it's relative, my truth is different than your truth. It's just what, I'm, like our society does, you know, everybody's truth is, is, is better than everybody else's or the same truth. Uh, rather to say that we're, we're discovering God's best in various situations by the Holy Spirit. So Moses is coming down with this law. And I wanna pause just to bring you on board to say, what light are you living by? What torch do you carry? I'm looking for my phone. I don't have it on me, but uh, I would light it up and shine it on you. It's the most practical part of a phone now is <laughs> just the little flashlight that, that, you know, you go out to get some wood in the backyard and it's dark and it's, whoa, that's not wood, that's a rat, you know. <laughs> you, you get to turn on the light. So... What, what light are you carrying? It's an interesting question to ask uh, because our society often says, uh, oh, I don't, I don't live by any of that. But I have discovered that every single person has a truth that they're living by. For some people, they're just a hedonist. What are you living for? My own happiness, my own pleasure. It's my guiding light guides me every day. Every day is a selfie moment. Me, 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 am I happy, happy, happy? And then we usually move on from that and we say, well, that's, that's not satisfying to just live for your own happiness. In the corporate world, what are we living for? Bottom line, money. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, I'm sorry, Pink Floyd just went through my mind. <laughs> Money. So, don't you start singing. 
This is going to be fun today. So what's above my happiness? What's above just money? And usually, if you're a leader of some sort, you begin to think things more clearly and say, you know what? Obviously, I want to be happy. Obviously, I want money. We got to live, survive. But is there something higher? And usually, we begin to think of, I want the best for my employees. Bring in an HR person. We're going to get the best for our employees. And then we usually think of something even higher. We want to make some kind of corporate impact on culture and society, Bill Gates Foundation. And then we think, well, is there something higher? Is there something higher? I had to do that in my own life, uh, both as a parent and as a pastor. I, when I first started pastoring, I just thought it would be good to collect a lot of knowledge and teach a lot of knowledge to the people so they get to collect a lot of knowledge. And so I, I pictured church as kind of a school where it's just getting knowledge into you. And then I thought, you know, that's really not satisfying. What, are we just silos collecting God factoids? What, what would be higher? Than, what's a higher purpose than that? And I thought, well, not just to know about him, but to actually know him. Maybe we're collecting factoids to actually know him better. And I changed the purpose of the church, knowing God and making God known. Sounds kind of mystical, huh? I know him, I make him known. I just... But then I asked, well, how do we know him? How do we make him known? What, what happens? Is there anything measurable? And I saw Jesus teaching on salt and light. And I changed the purpose of me as a pastor and said, you know, I want to see people transformed by the knowledge, by their interaction of knowledge and the Holy Spirit, actually become someone new, different, and to transform their world. You see, the torch became something more and more important for me and guiding me. The same is true in parenting. When I started out, I just thought it'd be cool to have kids. That was my torch. Why did you have children? because it would be cool. <laughs> it's kind of a DNA experiment. Is there anything higher? And then we move to, you know, what most parents in uh, America is just one is the higher goal is survival. I want to survive the next 20 years. And nobody gets killed. We all walk away and we're okay. Or... I just want them to be happy. That's what we hear oftentimes when we speak on parenting. What's your goal? I don't know. Why do you even ask that? I just want them to be happy. That's just, a, that's your torch. You're aiming, you know, at In-N-Out Burger. You know, just make them happy. Is there anything higher? And usually a Christian comes in here and says, you know, my goal is that they would go to heaven. Anything in between? <laughs> well, my goal is that they would grow up to be Christians and that they would go to a Christian college and marry a Christian spouse and have Christian babies. <laughs> anything higher, anything measurable. And you realize that we've, we, in our lives, we, came to, we want to raise kids that are being changed, transformed, by Jesus and want to make a dent in this world in some manner, whatever they're into, if they're into sculpting, that they would be amazing sculptures that, that change their world through their art. So we, we evolve. So Moses is evolving. He, he had only faithfulness and righteousness. He had only his experience with Pharaoh and the laws of of Egypt, and now he's coming back with the Ten Commandments. Oh my gosh. So what are the Ten Commandments? Let's look at those. Number one, no other gods before me. No image, no form of anything. Number two, don't bow down or worship any other gods. 
wow, those are big. Now, most of us think, wow, those don't apply to us anymore. Anybody seen a little tiki god in the garden of a friend and you're tempted to bow down? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you know, we're past the little tiki god thing, you know. But the next one, worship. What if you change the idea of worship to what is the most significant thing in your life that you build your time, your resources, your attention around? What is that? And is that in front of God? Woo, wow. That's almost meddling in the church to think through, is there something that's in front of, in between you and God that would be called worship? The word worship means to declare worth. So how valuable is God and how valuable is your Ferrari? You know, is that in front of whatever that Ferrari thing is? I'm I'm banking on the fact that most of us don't have a Ferrari here. So I'm not meddling in your life, but a person, a position, a thing that now becomes uh, more significant than God. Then the third is don't misuse the name Yahweh. Take that name in vain. I spelled it out as it it would be in the Hebrew, only using uh, English letters so that you could see it, Y-H-W-H, and uh, nobody knows technically how to pronounce that name. It, the Jews wanted to be so careful to not misuse the name that they purposely would never pronounce the name because you don't want to misuse the name. So when they added con- uh, vowels to the Hebrew language, they added different vowels, which were from the word Adonai, into the name so that if anyone did pronounce it, they would pronounce it wrong. And that's how we came out with uh, Jehovah. It, it, it pronounces those letters that way. But most scholars think it was something like Yahweh, Yahweh, something like that. And, um, but you weren't to misuse the name. Now, what would be misusing the name? Because it's, it's all throughout Scripture, praise to Yahweh, praise. What would that be? It would be using the name in a way that is inappropriate to worshiping God. So most people think it's cussing. And, you know, and I'd say, well, you just don't cuss anyway. It's just not, doesn't, it's not becoming of you. But usually, and I think Jesus bears this out, when we swear by the name to get something we want. And we do that in our culture too. I swear to God, do not trust anybody who says that. (laughs) Right? I mean, they should be trustworthy. Their yes is yes and their no is no, but as soon as they get loud or they trump the, the room with, I swear to God, it's like, whoa, okay, 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 we won't challenge you anymore. We'll just buy everything you say and believe everything you say. That's a misuse of the relationship. And there's all kinds of ways that we might do that. Uh, Another way we might do that in church culture is um, you want someone to do whatever you want them to do, and so you say, well, the Lord spoke to me, and you're supposed to give me all your money. Uh, The Lord spoke to me, and you're supposed to marry me. The Lord showed me in a dream that uh, you're to do everything I tell you to do. Those kind of things. I encourage our staff to not play the, the God card because it, it's a way of trumping and ending dialogue. Okay, well, God has spoken. We, can't, we cannot, the Pope has spoken. We cannot challenge. So if we back off from that and say, well, you know, every one of us, um, we're not God and we're respecting God, so we don't use the name that way. That's what Moses is hearing from God. And then the fourth one is six days you shall labor 
do all your work, and the seventh is to be the Sabbath. This is a difficult one uh, because so many people have different opinions about this. One is, if you just take it literally, that you're to honor the Sabbath and follow all the laws around the Sabbath. You cannot walk more than a third of a mile and, or do any exercise or any work or turn on any appliance or, or scuff your feet on the, on the ground, which would be uh, doing work and possibly creating a spark if the shoes are leather, you know, and that would be lighting a fire on the side. You know, most of us don't think that way. We just think of, well, is, this, is it Saturday or not? So let's take the day off. And it's, well, that's really not what the Sabbath was in, intended to be. It was a reflection on there is a God and it is not you. You've been working hard for six days, but step back for the seventh to just admit to your own soul that you didn't do it. You know, you may have watered the garden, but you didn't create the seeds. You didn't create the sun. You didn't, you know, step back for a day and see that the world runs without you. Have you ever done that? You know, oh my gosh, they, everyone lived without me. The seventh day was that reminder that there is a God and it is not you. So some people have resolved the tension on the Sabbath to say, well, the Sabbath day is still supposed to be honored on Saturday today. And so you may be Jewish and you say, okay, but I'm now a believer in Jesus, so I, I, I honor the Sabbath and I, like the early church that was all primarily uh, Jewish for the first several years, uh, I worship on Sunday because that's the Lord's day and the early church always worshiped on Sunday because that was resurrection day, day of new beginning and it was never confused with Saturday. Or you may take the position like a lot of people did in the Reformation that we moved Shabbat to Sunday. That's just, Sunday is now Sabbath day. The pilgrims did that and they would rest all day long because that was now. Or you might take the position of what some people do as they read Colossians and Galatians. The Lord is not respectful of any day and you don't have to hold one day above another. That Jesus is the fulfillment of your Sabbath. That he is the one that brought you into rest. He is the one that fulfilled everything and so Jesus is the celebration of your Sabbath that's all I'm going to say about the fourth command and you choose door number one door number two or door number three and I'm still going to love you right major in the majors and minor in the minors so then we come to the fifth through tenth command which is six of them that now turn horizontal how are you going to live out this God life? Number one, honor your parents. Goes right to the basic institution of society, the family. And, and the fact that a child is individuating and now has an opinion. I, I like this or I don't like this. Why do we always have turkey on Thanksgiving? Why not pizza? So you have these opinions and tensions, and the general guideline is just honor them. Honor them. I had this uh, thought when I was 18. I was, uh, I was a brand new Christian. I had hair down to here. It's hard to even imagine me with hair, but I had uh, <laughs> hair down to here, and uh, I'm, I'm mowing the lawn, and which I'd done since I was, what, seven years old, and... Uh, and I feel, and my dad's really upset with me that I have long hair. Always had been upset. And I think I hear God say to me, yea, verily, as you cut the lawn, go cut your hair. <laughs> It'll mean the world to your dad. And I had this inner dialogue, God, I don't have to cut my hair. I honor him, I respect him, I just don't want to do what he wants. And... Uh, <laughs> So there's different ways, and so I went and cut my hair, you know, to, 
different ways where we can honor and show respect for different people. Um, Secondly, don't murder. You're gonna get ticked off. You know, the problem with the world is people. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, eliminate people. It's just the problem. And so sometimes it goes from bothersome to angry to, yeah. And uh, so the guideline is don't murder. Don't ever get to that point. The next, and by the way, it's not kill there, so it's not a statement of war, no war. That's a different discussion. But this is don't murder. Next is don't commit adultery. Be faithful to the person you married. Don't steal. Adultery leads right into that, doesn't it? Only now we've moved from people to to all kinds of things. Don't steal. And don't give false witness to a neighbor. What is that? False witness is saying something about your neighbor that is going to put them in a bad light. Um, that you probably wouldn't say if they were present. And it includes the churchy sins of gossip and slander. So it's, and then the final one is don't covet. And notice those of us living in California, don't covet somebody's house. It's hard in California. If you have a million dollar home, it's probably uh, a very small tiny little thing without a backyard, right? We're, nobody's impressed. You know, we're all uh, struggling trying to sur- survive, but occasionally you, you see a larger home with, wow, they actually have a yard. Or, wow, they actually have two bathrooms. That must make it a million and a hundred thousand because they got the extra bathroom. So a lot of people move to Texas and they, they leave us because they're looking for land and buildings, but it's easy to start coveting. So these are some basic guidelines that are very, very cool that God just said, okay, this is, this is some broad strokes as you go forward. This is your torch. This is your guiding light, right? Now, the, what's fascinating is you follow this further and Jesus takes these things further and condenses them into two laws. The 10 become two. And he actually learned this from Moses. Jesus, this expert, learned this from Moses. Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Mark 12, 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus says he, he adds mind in there. And that becomes the synopsis of the first four. You don't have to worry about the negative. I can't worship. I can't do the idle thing. I've got to remember the Sabbath. I've got to just love Jesus with all you are, right? Proactively. And then the second six are solved by what Moses said in Leviticus 19.18 and what Mark records Jesus saying in 12.31. Love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. Anybody do that regularly? Love your neighbor the same way, with the same attention, the same amount of time you spend on yourself. How many got up and thought about your neighbor's hair when you're combing your hair? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, wow. If I cared that much about my neighbor... I wouldn't worry about all the negative. Don't covet, don't lie, uh, because there, it's there. So Jesus saw that. But the other thing that Jesus brings out before we leave the subject of truth is Jesus brings out, it's just not knowing about the truth, it's doing the truth. Truth is a noun and true is a verb. Be true. Be true to me. That's a verb, right? Be true to what you have discovered to be your guiding light of truth. Verb it and noun it. Know the truth, but do the truth. Truthing it. And so Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, 
don't commit adultery. I say to you, don't lust. That's the truing it. That's the intent of the law. It's not just saying, well, can't commit adultery, but I'm going to just lust the living daylights out of this situation because I haven't adult, adulterated. No, Jesus brings the intent of the law out. It's the same with murder. You've heard it said don't commit murder, but I say don't hate. Don't even call the person a fool. He brings out the intent. Of, and this is your beacon. This is your light. And, and Moses is receiving this in an ancient world where there was nothing going on. And he, he holds this truth to the people of Israel and says, this is your new guiding light as to how we're going to live as a community. So are you still there? So let me remind you of a story where Jesus had to deal with truth. It's the story that you know so well, the woman caught in adultery. She's brought before Jesus, and you don't even want to know. How did they even find her? They, they say they caught her in the very act. That is just really weird. I, you know, I don't even want to know what they were doing, how they were plotting or conniving to catch her in the act. But nevertheless, they bring her before Jesus and they present truth to Jesus. The truth is, according to the law of Moses, she has to be stoned to death. We are all witnesses, eyewitnesses of the crime. What do you say, Jesus? Wow, cold hard truth. You know, truth by itself is pretty blunt and brutal. It can be really harsh. And so Jesus bends and doodles in the sand. And nobody knows to this day, when you get to heaven, what do you want to ask you? I want to know what he wrote in the sand. <laughs> but we do know that one by one, the men who connived and caught her begin to leave from the oldest chronologically to the youngest, which tells you that Jesus knew the ages of each of these men. What did he write in this? And the suspicion is that he began to write one word of each of them, their sin. And they see their sin being written in the sin that nobody knows about. But the truth, you want truth, baby? We got truth on you. We got truth on you. We got truth on you. They all begin to leave, and now they're all gone. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? Truth. Truth. So what is the truth that you're living by? What has God handed you, and how have you applied that truth to the various relationships and stages you have in life? Now we come to the second one, which is the word grace, the core of God. Let me read this passage to you, and then I'll put it together. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning. I'm in verse 4 of chapter 34. As Yahweh had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands, then Yahweh came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Then Moses came down, in verse 29, from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant of the law in his hands, and he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with Yahweh. What happens here, and I'll give you the backstory, is 
grace, or just simply put, God's love enters the picture. So it's not just raw truth, but it's also love, because truth can be a harsh sword without love. And love can just be a big marshmallow without truth. Well, if we just love each other, let's not talk about whether you came home last night or not. Let's just love. Let's not talk about whether you went to work or not. Let's just, you know, there needs to be some truth to the love. And those two things go together. So here's the backstory. So Moses, the first time, when he's coming down with the truth, he's got the tablets in his hand. And as he's walking down the mountain, he hears and then eventually sees that the Israelites, before he can even present the truth, have rebelled against the truth. They have created an idol made of gold, a calf that was reminiscent of their time in Egypt, and they're worshiping it, and they have this big orgy going on, which was a common to uh, polygamy in those days. They, they would combine their sexuality with their worship. And, and Moses comes into this setting. And what do you say? Oy vey. I mean, what else can you say? Oy vey. And Moses is furious. Throws the tablets down. The law is broken. Truth doesn't matter. You're not going to do the truth. Forget the truth. <laughs> and now... Everybody's crying, everybody's weeping, everybody realizes, oh, we blew it. And they begin to plead with Moses, please go see if God will forgive us. We, in the story, are on the edge of the map. The map doesn't go on beyond that. The question is, can God forgive you violated truth. It's not in the manual. Can God forgive? You go back and read the pages of Genesis. You go back and you can, you can kind of infer in a couple of instances that God might forgive or can forgive, but there's nothing blatant. Is God a forgiving God? You and I, if, particularly if you grew up in a Christian context, you're just like, well, of course he forgives. It's not only fair, it's an American right. It's, you know, God has to forgive if I'm an American. <laughs> How do you know that? And the other thing we do is we diminish truth in order to get forgiveness. Well, of course I committed murder, but it was a little murder. <laughs> you know, or a lot of people have murdered. And we diminish it or we globalize it in order to get the forgiveness. But what if it's your forgiveness is towering? What if it's miles high? And the question is, can God forgive that? It's a great question. If you minimize sin, you are going to minimize grace. Ooh, Mark, I like that. <laughs> Could you say that again? Yeah, I think I will. If you minimize sin, you will minimize grace. It's just true. So Moses goes back up the mountain to get the answer to his question. Nobody knows. The nation of truth has broken truth. So God leads Moses into a new discovery. Moses goes up and he says, God, can, can you forgive? And God says, forget it, forget it. Just, I'm just, step aside, Moses. I'll make you into a great nation. I'm just gonna kill them all. And Moses says, you can't do that. I mean, how will that read in, in the Cairo Times that, that <laughs> God takes 2.4 million people into the desert to exterminate them? You know, it's just not gonna look good. It's bad PR. Now, the question there is, is, is Moses actually converting God or is God allowing Moses to discover the nature of God? So we go into one step further and God says, all right, all right, all right, I'll, I'll, I won't kill him and uh, 
but I just can't go with you. And Moses says, you got to go with us. And so God says, okay, okay, but I can't go. I'm going to send my angel. And then Moses says, but we didn't sign up for no stinking angel. (laughs) We signed up for you, God. And if you don't go, we don't go. It's a Fisher cut bait moment. And then God says, all right, I'll go. But we still don't know the verbiage. Is, is God, does that mean he's really forgiving? And so Moses asked the next question. Since, since I keep getting answers, you say yes to everything I ask. How about this? Let me see your face. Let me see you. No big deal. I just want to see you, God. And he says, no one can see my face and live, but I will pass by and declare my name. Why is my name important? Because a name in that culture was the identity. It was the character. That's who Yahweh is. I will declare, I will shine light through my name, Yahweh, and I'll unpack it for you as to what it means. Like a light through a prism. All the colors the aspects of God. Wouldn't that be cool if you could know all the aspects of God in the core of who God is? So that's what happens. And these are the characteristics that Moses hears. Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate. You're kidding me. The first word to self-describe God is compassionate. So be worthy of a pause on your remote control. Is that the first word that comes to your mind in your relationship with God? People always tell me, said, so who is God? Well, for one thing, he's the maker of everything. Cool. Must be kind of like an intimate relationship you have. Well, he's also omnipresent. He's omnipotent. Of course, he's all those things, but if you were to hang out with him, what would he be like? Compassionate? Think of what a compassionate person is. A compassionate person says to you, it's okay, little buddy, I understand you. I understand your strengths and weaknesses, and I get it, and I have a lot of patience with you, and it's okay. It's, it's mercy, it's compassion. The second word is gracious. Have you ever been around a gracious person? I've been around non-gracious people. Where you been? You know, 29 seconds late. Hey, I think you've eaten enough there. I think you've spoken enough. Hey, you're using up all the oxygen in the room. Please stop breathing. (laughs) You know, a gracious person allows you to be you. What do you need? What do you want? And some cultures are like that. You need more food. You need this. You know, let's, oh, no, no rush. We got all year to be with you. You know, I, I love gracious cultures, gracious people. God is gracious. Look at the third one. Slow to anger, long fruit, uh, fuse. You angry yet? Nope. <laughs> angry yet? Nope. You ever been around a short fuse person called eggshells? Don't mention that. Don't mention that. Don't do that. Don't think that. Just don't. But God is long-fused. The Hebrew says that it takes a long time for his nose to get red. That's the word. Isn't that beautiful? Some people, when they get angry, it's just like Rudolph. No, I'm not angry, and their nose is just glowing. No, it doesn't bother me at all. So God is long-fused, and he's faithful. I love the next slide, please. Uh, bounding in love. Yeah, sk- skip that. Um, <laughs> go back to, go back, yeah, bounding in love. 
occasionally I see the slide, and I'm glad I do. So abounding in love. I was at a restaurant once, and I won't mention the gender of the waiter, but when he came to the table, <laughs> he was very, very talkative, you know, and I love talkative waiters, and they're just, but sometimes a little much is too much, you know, like we're actually trying to have a conversation here, but so he came, and he was just talking and talking and talking, pouring my water, and I'm watching the water get close to the rim of the glass, and now it's overflowing. And he's still talking. And I decided, rather than say, whoa, 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 you know, what are you doing? I just said, you know, I'm going to go with this. (laughs) It's not my tablecloth. And he just kept pouring and pouring and pouring, telling us this story. And I thought, wow, what a picture. What if love was that way? Because that's what the word is. It overflows. God's love for you. And he's faithful. And do you know what faithful means? Faithful means he's still with you when you are not. Have you ever been in a pity party and say, oh, no, I'm just not being a Christian today. God's still there with you. He, he's faithful to you. He maintains that love. And here it is, Forgiving. Folks, he is a forgiving God. The one who doesn't have to forgive, the one who's perfect, he's forgiving. And you don't have to minimize your sin because he forgives wickedness. Now, I know no one has ever been wicked here, right? Because our sin is not wicked. It's just, it's just sin. <laughs> what is sin? Wickedness, rebellion. No one's rebellious. What is sin? It's rebellion. What do you know, God? I'm going to do it. Wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God is forgiving. This is the core of God. Now, it goes on to say, and he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So if you don't want the core of God, you still are going to receive justice. Truth is still going to cut you because truth is truth, but nevertheless, the unseen core of God that we needed to know was that he's loving and forgiving. And ancient societies did not know. This became so profound that this became a mantra that was repeated several more times about seven or eight times in the Old Testament, any time they got into disaster, and the Israelites did it many, many times, where they're going back to ask God for forgiveness, the support for the forgiveness is because you revealed yourself to Moses as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding with love, maintaining love for thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And so they repeat it. As, a, as if it's a trump card, because that's who you are. You are that. At the core of God, that's who you are. And did you know that, my friends? Did you know that? So what happens when you fail to live up to your truth? What happens when the torch that you're carrying as you're the great leader that you are, you fail? In small or big ways, what do you do? The God you are following is a forgiving God. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's, there's a chance. There's hope. Because we went off the map of truth and we discovered more truth. And that is that God is loving. So truth and love become the banner for you as a leader. Yeah, truth and love. Let me tell you a story about my own life where I failed. Uh, I got better, but I... So I had a pastor uh, that 
I had invited on staff as an assistant pastor. We were growing this church from zero to 350, and that's a big deal in this part of the country. And um, Jan and I take our first vacation, go down to Cape Cod, and, and I have someone steering the ship while I'm gone. We have a part-time youth pastor, part-time children's ministry director, Everything's going fine. I get back and find out that the youth pastor quit, the children's ministry director quit, and it was because of the assistant pastor that he was an idiot. That he decided to exercise his bravado and that he was more important than them and decided to, uh, and they just said, I can't deal with this guy, and they just quit. I was livid. I was furious. I murdered him in my heart (laughs) multiple times. And so I scheduled a meeting with him at night at my house to fire him. And uh, I was so angry. And God intervened. Doesn't always. He came to me in my prayer time and specifically told told me, do not fire him. So when I met with him that night, I let him have it for two hours of just, what have you done to destroy our church? And at the end of my angry lecture, he says, so I guess you're firing me. And I said, I want to, but God won't let me. This was an expensive lesson. And I've just invested in your education. (laughs) We've got to figure this out. Do you know what happened? Because truth and grace were there, he became, to this day, one of the best pastors I know. He is so compassionate, he's so gracious, he's so loving, so kind that anyone would want to be in his church, but you wouldn't have wanted at first. He was like a bouncer, just throw you out of, out of the church, but he became this wonderful, wonderful guy. And it was the application of truth and love. And isn't that how Jesus has tr- treated you? Isn't it? It's how he's treated you. It's why you follow. It's not just because you found truth through, through him. You found love through Jesus. And that's the hallmark of a leader who has been to the mountain. Yes, we stand for truth. Yes, we have a beacon, a guiding light. Yes, we are a lighthouse and all of that. But we have this side of compassion and forgiveness and understanding. It doesn't mean that people are never fired. It doesn't mean that people aren't held accountable. It doesn't mean that there aren't job descriptions and all of that. But it just means that I'm just not raw truth walking around. That I'm also compassionate. So if you go back to the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, he says to her, where are your accusers? And she says, they've all gone. And he says the words, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What truth do you think changed her life? That she shouldn't commit adultery? She already knew that. It was the truth that she could be forgiven. So in John 1.14, we read, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, and we, like Moses seeing the glory of God, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of He does rule the world (laughs) with truth and grace. And it's now a part of your life. It's it's who we are. It's what leaders who have come to know Jesus. 
There's a scene in the Old Testament that I want to leave you with. It's where the cherubim, who are carved gold angels on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, about 18 inches high, they're looking at the center of the Ark of the Covenant in amazement. You can read that in the Torah. They're like this. And do you know what they're staring at? They're staring at the spot where the blood is sprinkled. The truth is, inside the ark is the Ten Commandments. The truth is, you messed up, baby. The truth is, you deserve to be fired. But the amazing thing is that there's a deeper magic and it's grace. And God, at the cross, loved you that way. Truth and grace kissed for you at the cross. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for leading Jesus. You led us with truth and grace. We've seen it in the pages of the Gospels. And God, we want to grow up and be people. I pray, God, for those of us that tend to lead with the sharp-edged sword of truth, that, God, we would discover more of your grace. And for those of us that have just left love to be a squishy marshmallow without reality that you would remind us that north is true north. It's still north. Truth is still truth. Truth. And that you'd bring all of us back to the cross where we have discovered your great forgiveness for our sins. And God, certainly you have forgiven the small and the great sins, the wickedness rebellion and sin and we thank you thank you thank you this morning while we're praying while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this may be a moment where you make that decision to follow this great Jesus who has shown you truth and grace you may have made this decision a long time ago when you were young or maybe not at all. But this is a moment where you would say, Lord, come into my life. Lord, forgive me of my sin. Lord, give me a fresh start. Make me new. I, I want to live for a higher truth than what I've been living for. So if that's you this morning, while the rest are praying, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if that's you, would you raise your hand where you are and just say, yeah, today's that day. I'm following Jesus. Yes, God bless you over here to my left. Thank you. Who else? Just lift it up high so I can see it. Yeah, thank you. Bold, strong. Yes, God bless you down here and down here to my left. Yeah. God bless you back here to my right. Thank you. Anyone else? It's really for your own soul that you're making this decision to decide, yeah, I'm living for the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. I'm following him. Anybody else? Just lift it high so that I can see it. Yeah, thank you. God bless you. If you raise your hand here this morning, would you just pray this prayer as I pray it out loud? Lord, come into my life. <laughs> Lord, I'm so aware of who I'm not without you. I'm so aware of what, of what I've done. I'm so aware of the, the if-onlys of my life. Forgive me and wash me clean. Because I believe that you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding with love, 
faithfulness, maintaining that love and forgiving even my sin. Come into my life by your Holy Spirit and make me new because I believe in Jesus. And from this day forward, I am a follower of Jesus in whose name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.